You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. You are listening to MSE. I'm Bill Powers. And in today's show, you're going to hear about 10 things that I learned as a junior resource speculator in 2023. It's always good to look back at the past year, look at your wins and losses, debrief, analyze your mistakes and successes and the thought process that went into it. I do that every year between Christmas and New Year's. So what I share with you today is a result of the last week of reflection. Although I've been taking notes along the way, as I've been learning even this year, this is now my eighth year of being a resource investor that I just concluded. So you'll hear 10 lessons or rules of thumbs in this monologue. So in this episode, you're going to hear the thoughts of an investor who started investing in resource stocks with tens of thousands of dollars eight years ago. Today, I have millions of dollars deployed in my own portfolio, my own money, not somebody else's. It's 100% my own money at risk. Most of the lessons you're going to hear about in today's monologue, I didn't learn for the first time, but perhaps I learned them to a greater degree this year, or they became more important to me this year. So that's what I'll be sharing today. So if you're newer to junior resource investing, you'll get to learn from my experience, just as I've learned from others' experience over the past eight years. And if you've been at this a while, you can use my musings to further reflect upon and hone your own approach to resource investing. So let's begin. Lesson number one, view junior resource stocks as call options with limited time value. You date, you don't marry junior resource stocks. You rent, you don't buy junior resource stocks. They're very time contingent. And the first one that introduced this idea of junior resource stocks being viewed as a call option was strategic resource investor Dave Lotan on the show to me a little over two years ago. I'm going to play that clip for you right now. Junior resource stocks, in my view, are long-dated call options. And the duration of those options is unknown and can be extended by good management and, uh, and by a change in commodity prices or a change in investor psychology. So it's important to view junior resource stocks as call options with limited time value. Hopefully you know what an option is to understand the point we're trying to communicate here, but a call option is a leveraged way to profit off of a bullish move. But that bullish move has to occur within a certain time frame because there's only a limited time frame given for that call option. And if that bullish move doesn't occur within that time frame, the call option can become worth zero. Now, a junior resource stock might not go to zero, but I've had them in my own account to where they go drop 90 to even 95%. It happens. So the value that needs to be produced with you has to occur within a certain time frame. So you have to view it like that, especially pre-revenue junior mining stocks. This is how you have to view it. The producers, they're going to go up and down, but their moves might be 40 to 60%. You might not get those 90, 95% drops and like you will in a junior pre-revenue stock. So what determines the length of the call option? It could be the commodity price has great influence upon the funding window for junior resource stocks. It could be the ability of the management to be thrifty and not burn cash as fast to extend the potential time value. It could be the ability to keep the share price up via marketing. So if they have to recapitalize the company, at least they're not going to dilute you to oblivion to where that position becomes meaningless. 
I've had positions that I've held that have dropped so much that the amount of money I have in that particular position, it, it's meaningless to me. So even if it goes tenfold from here, it doesn't even mean anything to me. So I had a stock that I was up nearly 10 times, whereas I was up about 10 times through a friend I was told of another person that they recently talked to that said they were down 85% on that stock. The same stock that I was up 10x on, they were down 85%. Because of the cyclicality of this market, because of the boom and bust, because of failure in a previous cycle versus a reattempt in a new cycle, which is I bought at the reattempt of a new cycle. They bought at the peak of a of a failed cycle. You have to time it right and you have to view it as having limited time value, which means you have to stay on top of these little stocks. And if it's not moving in the right direction, just realize that time is running out in order to create value for you. And if it runs out and they run out of cash, they're going to dilute you out of your position like you wouldn't believe. There's financings that I did in 2022 that I'm down 75% on and that I sold in Q3, Q4 of last year, because there's no reason for me to hold on to that. Even if it's a five bagger that barely gets me above where my initial capital was, I'll just take it for tax loss. I'll find something different. So the second point is consider intrinsic value as much greater than time value. So the second point deals with warrants. As an accredited investor, if I do private placement or other types of financing, you can get a warrant that comes along with those financings when you directly capitalize and, and fund a company, or if you buy something in the secondary market, a, a private transaction, perhaps there's opportunities there. So in addition to a share, you get a warrant, which is a call option on that company. In viewing these warrants that uh, come along with these private financing, I'm now at the place to where I will consider the intrinsic value as being worth much more, greater in value than the time value. And I'm not going to let big profits slip away because that's what I've done in the last two years. Uh, in this last year, I was deeply, deeply in the money, including over 100% on some warrants I had. So for example, if a warrant can be exercised at $0.05, cents, but the stock of that company is trading for $0.10, cents, you're 100% in your money. There's The intrinsic value is $0.05 cents in the money. And then you may have, let's say, nine months left and you're 100% in the money. So the intrinsic value is five cents per warrant. And then the time value is that nine months and whatever you expect good could happen to that could cause a share price to go up more. So being in a situation like that, I didn't capture that in intrinsic value by selling the shares I had to then go back and repurchase the shares via the warrants and then capture that profit because I was bullish on the underlying commodity, because I was bullish on the potential value creation that I thought the company could accomplish uh, throughout 2023, I ended up overvaluing the time premium or the time value and therefore didn't even capture the intrinsic value. And that was no small sum of money. So if I'm in the money on my warrants, I'm going to capture that. I've had warrants that I've been in the money as much as 350%, the warrants. And I didn't exercise them because there was two years left of time value. And I said, I'll give the company more time to create value. Well, the value never occurred. 
and cycles being what they are, the stock went back down. And by the time that warrant came due, then the CEO e- emails me, said, do you want to exercise them? You know, we're 5% above the exercise price. And I said, no, thank you. So when I'm in the money that, and those profits are there, I am going to capture those profits. And I'm not going to, I don't care if there's five years left. If there's enough meaningful intrinsic value there, I'm going to capture it. I'm not going to overvalue the time value now. And I've had friends that have had uh, this same issue. And this leads me into the third point that non-captured unrealized gains are not losses. So I agonized and kicked myself for uh, no few days over the lost (laughs) profit that I had that I didn't capture. And as I maybe threw a little bit of a pity party, but not too big of one, I talked to three friends and I'll share three of their experiences. One friend had a $700,000 unrealized gains in some warrants he had that he didn't play right. Another friend was playing tradable warrants on the exchange in 2011 when silver was peaking and had $3 million of uncaptured gains at that time that evaporated when silver rolled over and the market rolled over quickly and the $3 million on paper turned into not realized at all. Another friend that I chatted with, he had hundreds of thousands of dollars of profit because he had financed a little silver company before the run-up in 2020. That came with a warrant. And he also, because he valued the time value too much, did not capture the profit that he could have in 2020 during that run because there was so much time left on the warrants. So I'm, re- I'm repeating myself here, but the intrinsic value, if they're in the money, especially if it's big profits, especially if I took a bigger position to begin with and that's meaningful money, I'm going to capture it. I don't care if it goes 10x after I exercise the, the warrants and then sell them. I'm just going to be happy with the win that I had. Point number four, choose to be a self-directed investor and not a victim. The bear market exacerbates this truth. So many people do not take responsibility for their losses. They look to blame somebody else. You're either going to choose to be the one in charge of your money, or you're going to be at the whims of whoever you're going to blame that introduced a certain investment idea to you. Remember that most of what we talk about on this show is speculative. So it's an if-then statement. You make a decision to invest. There's a thesis you go by to guide you into that decision. And if the commodity price performs, and if management executes, and if they discover more mineralization, and if they're able to acquire that company, then the share price could go up. Then value will be increased. So it's an if-then statement. You don't know if the positive if is going to occur to produce the desired then. And some people don't understand that. They say, well, this seemed like a good pick, or so-and-so said that this was a good pick. Yeah, it's a pick. We assess the probability that it could be successful, but we don't know. That's why full success isn't priced in yet, because if the positive if occurs, then the positive then will occur. You base your decision based on information. You know, and you should also, in your thesis development, say, there is such there is information that I don't know. So you want to Write down the information you do know that goes into your decision, as well as these are the unknowns I'm carrying into this investment decision. Then there is the role of randomness, as some say, or chance or luck. 
and then whatever skill you bring to the table to make the assessment if you should move forward or not. But even in developing your thesis, all this that goes into it, it's still an if-then statement. Take responsibility for your decisions. You're going to be a self-directed investor or you're going to be a victim. And if you blame somebody else's for your fails or losses in the market, you are not a self-directed investor. You're a passive agent being acted upon. They control your finances. So for example, one company I invested in after research, including going and visiting management, um, is Regenix Tech Corp, which was a 2023 sponsor. They're not a 2024 sponsor, but they were a 2023 sponsor. And in May of 2022, when I was looking at the company, then I interviewed management for the show before they were a sponsor. I went down to their plant in Tennessee, checked things out. I like what I saw. I took a position later in 2022 at about seven and a half cent cost basis. As I speak now, the stock was at like four cents. I'm talking in Canadian dollars right now. But from the time I featured the show in May of 2022 until now, in the last 18 months, the stock traded in a range between three and 13 cents. So there's a 4x, whatever will become of the company, there's a four times profit for you or me, if I would have bought a three cents within that time frame. So even if somebody bought and the company is not successful, you still had an opportunity to do 4x your money trading it in the last 18 months. My current analysis at this point is that the company is going to be successful and it's going to be a 30x or the company is not going to be successful and it's going to be a 0x. So it's kind of like a, a binary outcome is my current analysis and it's trading for about half of what my own cost basis is at this point. And you could say, well, what happened if it fails? Was that a bad decision? No, I still think it was a good decision, but it's an if-then statement. And if management doesn't execute or if they can't prove commercialization, then it's not going to be successful. And looking at it as a call option, maybe it'll be successful, but maybe it's three years from now, but then I'll be diluted so far out if I haven't sold by then that it won't even matter. So this is how you should look at it. But at the end of the day, I made the decision and I didn't make the decision haphazardly. I did it with investigation and I purposely took it on because I think it could be a huge win if it worked out. We'll see if it works out or not. But you are in control. You have to be the active agent of your decision-making and of your money. And that means if it fails or you lose money, then you have to point the finger at yourself. Number five, in 2023, I really realized that a lack of information or coverage in small caps really allows for the dishonest bashers to step in and fill part of that lack of information or lack of coverage void. Now, when you have a, a big cap stock, there's going to be a lot of analysts, there's going to be a lot of fund managers, there's going to be a lot of people looking at and investing in and talking about those companies. But the opportunity for us is that when it gets to be the smaller caps, there's not as many eyeballs on it. So if you can discover the value before somebody else, you can get in before others realize that value and drive the share price up. So that's the positive angle of that. The negative angle is that it also allows for the dishonest bashers or the dishonest critiquers to come in and twist things in a negative way that is detached from truth and reality. And I witnessed in 2023, there was dishonest lying and bashing, and they took advantage of 
the lack of clarity. And part of the lack of clarity, honestly, is if, if a small cap doesn't communicate well, then you can bring it upon yourself. If a, if a dishonest person, I'm not talking about somebody with an honest bear critique. If you have an honest bear critique of an investment thesis, that's good. There's the bull side of an argument. There's the bear side. That's what makes markets. So that's not what we're talking about, but it's the dishonest defaming or lying. And even when you're called out on your lie and it's proven that what you said is not just a bearish argument, but it's actually deceitful and dishonest when you don't come forward and say, yeah, I was wrong about that. I said thus and thus about management compensation. It was wrong. I said thus and thus they weren't going to drill, but they ended up drilling anyway. It's like, how do you know if they're not going to drill or not? Did you talk to management? No, but they're just not going to drill. Or they did this last last year for these reasons. And they have no idea why the management made or did not make decisions because they haven't talked to management, but they're twisting everything in the most negative light and that can have an influence on the market. So in situations where I've experienced that, it's been good and that maybe it raised a question, a legitimate question that I hadn't thought of that I should go get an answer for. But at the same time, the result or conclusion that they put out there was intentionally dishonest and devoid of the facts. And when they're presented with the facts, they don't publicly change their stance because the ultimate goal of what they're trying to do is not to present an honest story or even an honest critique. There's an ulterior motive there. And I address these ideas in two episodes. One in April was discerning bias in the mining investment sector. I'll link to that if you want to hear more of my thoughts on this. And also another one in July called Protect Your Profit from Small Cap Defamers. Insights from lawyer and investor Kerry Lutz, my friend from Financial Survival Network. He's a lawyer. He also was put on the witness stand for a defamation case in which uh, somebody he knows um, was defamed online, their business, and they actually won a massive judgment as a result of it. So he has some first-hand experience with that. Point number six, don't invest unless you have a legal competitive advantage. Kind of piggybacking on this last thought of the lack of information or coverage in small caps. This is what opens up the knowledge arbitrage for you to find value before others. And I'm telling you, when it comes to junior resource stocks, junior mining stocks, do not invest unless you can find a legal competitive advantage. What are you gonna do differently to outperform the GDXJ or the SILJ or the copper ETF, if that's what you're interested in? You gotta ask yourself these questions because are you gonna give your, your money to a generalist money manager who's gonna charge you 2% of all funds under management and take one fifth, 20% of your profits if he's successful with your money? I have a sister who's a surgeon and makes a good income. And years ago, she figured this out, not even talking to me, but she took her money back from the money manager because she said, all the guy does is charge me all these fees every year. He doesn't even beat the market. So she took the money under her own control. She'll just buy index funds. He can't even beat the market. So I'm just going to put it in an index fund. At least he's not going to charge me 2% management fee per year plus one fifth of the profits. I'm going to keep that for myself. So if he's a money manager, he better beat the index if he's going to charge money to do so. So you got to say to yourself, am I going to, what advantage am I going to bring that I'm going to outperform the junior mining ETFs? And you have to outline this for yourself as you develop your thesis. 
Are you buying lower than management's cost basis per share so that they can't profit off of you? They got to make you money in order for them to make money? Are you buying when the company was capitalized after a huge sell-off, perhaps an irrational sell-off that you've identified, but now the company has money to go create value? Are you buying before promoters or influencers get a hold of the stock and begin to discuss and feature it so that it goes up because there's more eyeballs on it now? Is it a legal uncertainty play and you've done the due diligence, you've read the legal arguments, or maybe you've even paid a lawyer to review everything for you so that you come up with a conclusion and you know more and you have more insight than the rest of the market that's ignoring the situation or perhaps viewing it differently. So you bet against the prevailing opinion because of the research you did. So you're finding a competitive advantage that you think you have a competitive advantage. And you can't have a competitive advantage if you never talk to management. Did management explain something to you when you talked with them that the market doesn't know yet? Something that they can legally tell you. I'm not encouraging you to seek out insider information. But the point is, you got to put in the work and you should write down, these are the competitive advantages that I have over others. And you also sure should, the flip side of that coin is, what are the advantages that the insiders and the other players have over me? You should also think and at least ask yourself that question. And I will tell you, based on conversations I've had, that people who are on the inside of how Vancouver works and how the junior mining market works, if they quote unquote invest in a junior that they're either not in control of or have friends that are in close control of that company and they know what's going on, their quote unquote investment is almost insignificant or meaningless to them. The only time that they're gonna write outsized checks is when they get such an unfair advantage over everybody else. And the ultimate way they do that is by giving themselves cheap stock. I saw an egregious one that occurred in uh, this past year in which four insiders issued themselves one cent stock via a RTO situation and issued themselves somewhere, I believe, between 14 and 17 million shares each for four insiders, then capitalized the company, I believe, at 20 cents before it began trading after the RTO. And so everybody that capitalized the company at 20 cents, they were locked up for four months, but the guys that issued themselves the one cent paper, they were going to have free trading shares after the RTO. Then they had something like $8 million to go market the company with. They made sure that they all then were under 10% before the RTO was completed so that they didn't need to report their buys and their sells. And they did a multi-million dollar marketing campaign, ran the stock up to 70 cents and had four months before any of the 20 cent private placement holders could sell their stock. So do you think that they held on to that one cent paper when the shares are trading at 70 times, a 70 bagger? It didn't even cost them, relatively speaking, that much money to acquire that many millions of shares. Why am I giving you this example? Number one, it's in the public markets. Number two, it's a resource stock. Number three, you need to be aware that these guys create this scenario so that they have an unfair competitive advantage over everybody else. It doesn't mean that you can't make money in this sector, but you have to first be aware of the advantage that others put themselves in to take advantage of you. And sometimes minimally the taking advantage of is just the ongoing salaries over years or in years and the perks and benefits they pay themselves without developing value for shareholders. You have to be aware of all this. And that brings me to point number seven, 
leading off of what I just said, you'll never outsmart the Vancouver insiders. You do, however, need to become more aware of how they operate, but you can outperform dumb retail. And honestly, that should be your goal. If you identify a bottom in a commodity or a commodity that's primed to move and you identify some of the better juniors before that commodity moves, there's going to be so much dumb money that rushes into this sector that's going to buy up these stocks that you can get positioned before them, be no more knowledgeable them to buy value before dumb retail comes in and just starts buying everything with the copper name or everything with the uranium name, whatever the hot commodity is. And I talked about this in um, a monologue, six ways to profit in a junior mining bear market. And you know, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, but you have to be smarter than the others. And in response to that monologue, I like what somebody posted in the comments. They said, Bill, what you talked about reminded me, it reminded them of the two camp, the story of the two campers that went out camping. As they were camping, a bear came upon their camp. So they both started to run. And as they were running, one guy said to the other, I don't think we're going to outrun the bear. To which the other replied, I'm not trying to outrun the bear. I'm trying to outrun you. And it's just the way it is. You're going to have to find your legal competitive advantage so that you're in a better place and get positioned before all the dumb retail money comes in. You're not going to outsmart the Vancouver insiders, but you do as you move along and you mature here in this sector and in your knowledge thereof, you need to be aware of what they do. Number eight, stay liquid. If you're a retail investor that can't invest directly in the company as an accredited investor, I just want to tell you that you actually have some advantages that accredited investors don't. And sometimes it's not as, you may not get the upside leverage with getting an extra warrant when you buy a share through a financing. So if it's successful, you don't get the upside leverage. However, you do get to stay nimble. You can get in and out of stocks. You can stay liquid because you don't have the holds that are placed on stock when you buy it directly from the company in a private placement. You have the ability to turn $5,000 into $15,000 without needing millions of dollars of trading volume. If you put in a hundred grand, it might be a lot harder to pull 300 grand out of a company unless there's significant volume. I've had way too much money myself locked up in private deals over the last really two years. So for example, 19 months ago, I invested in a company, a private resource company that was supposed to be public 16 months ago. Well, that meaningful check that I wrote is probably money I'll never see again, unless they do something I don't expect at this point. But that's money I would like to have back, but I'll likely never see it again. And so the company never even went public for me to then have a liquid event to make any money. I have three private co private company investments right now. One I financed some years ago, three or four years ago at this point, and they did subsequent financings at a higher price point than I first invested, which is good. And they do at some point in the future intend to go public. But still, you know, I'm three, four years of having illiquidity to where if I want to get out, it's there's not really somebody I can sell my shares to. So there's value in having liquidity and in not having your money locked up in these uh, private deals. And another private deal um, or non-publicly traded deal that I'm in right now is doing such low dilutive financing that the position I had is honestly just becoming meaningless. So 
the liquidity you have as a retail investor, even if you envy accredited investors at time, sometimes as accredited investors, we envy liquidity. <laughs> Just know that. Number nine, this year, I learned to change my mind and be willing to change my mind. I invested in a company called Correlate Energy. They do microgrids, rooftop commercial solar projects, uh, a very skilled and diverse uh, energy company. And at first I was approached uh, to invest in the company. I think it was three times during 2022 and I declined and I declined again and then I declined again. And I think it was after the third time that one of the board of directors said, Bill, I really think, will you just give it one more look? And this was in early 2023. And I said, okay, I'll give it one more look. And I had some negative preconceptions or initial ideas, uh, particularly towards solar energy that caused me to not want to look too deeply. But at his urging, I agreed and in agreeing, I flew out to the West Coast, spent a couple days with management. And then even after that, spent days researching and going through things to see if I wanted to make an investment. I had a, a good friend of mine that I invest with. We both uh, put a lot of time into it. We decided it was a good opportunity. It was an OTC company that was seeking to uplist to the NYSE in about a year or so. And so that was the play. A great team that had done this before in the private sector was now operating in a public vehicle. And then the flow of funds seemed to line up with what the company was trying to achieve and the valuation that the market was giving such a company fix it succeeded was going to make it worth my money if if this worked and so over a process of at least a month and a lot of research i changed my mind and i wrote a big check I, i'm i have over six hundred thousand dollars us into this company at this point i featured it on the show as a sponsor i believe it was last may at 65 cents and there was liquidity uh, when we featured it. Last I checked, the stock was over $2 on the OTC. And then the company has filed the S1 for the NYSE American uplist, and that hopefully should go through. And then on the New York Stock Exchange, there sh I expect my expectation, remember, it's an if-then statement. My expectation is that there's gonna be a lot of companies that can't buy it on the OTC, or a lot of funds, a lot of money managers, that would be interested in, on it on the NYSE. And if the company executes, the valuation the market can give these type of companies is far beyond what I currently see, especially like in my oil and gas portfolio, the, the cash flow multiples. If you want to learn more, I'll put a link below where I lay out my thesis for investing. But I was willing to change my mind. And then on the other side of changing my mind, I wrote a very meaningful check for me. And so far it's working out. We'll see what the end result uh, will be. And the last point, is, and this is something I, you know, it's always easier to look at the speck in somebody else's eye, see what they're doing wrong, rather than acknowledge and remove the log in your own eye. With that being said, I had some experiences this year that made me reflect upon my relationship with money. And as I've observed, or maybe been critical of some other people's character as, as it relates to their money. And I'll say this, that Increased wealth will only amplify your existing character, whether for the better or for the worse. Some of the most greedy people I've met are poor. Some of the most generous people I've met are poor. And I could tell you uh, stories just from my own 
just from people I know to where there's individuals I know that they don't have a lot of money, but they save up their money. Come Christmas time, they look for sales around town and they go buy stuff for other kids and for other charities. And so they take a greater percentage of what they have to be a blessing to somebody else. And then you can get a rich guy who gives a $10,000 donation, which is completely meaningless relative to his net worth. And he wants his name plastered everywhere and he wants all the glory and he wants everybody to know how benevolent he is. Okay. Increased wealth is only going to amplify your existing character for the better, for worse. Another way of saying this is don't let money change you. I don't want to be a different person just because I have more money. I remember after my parents divorced when I was in junior high, my mom, we had to live with relatives for a year in seventh grade. And my mom had to go back get her teaching certificate. She got a substitute job. So she would leave the house at 4.35 in the morning to drive through the Michigan winter in the dark snow to go be a substitute teacher for years to save up thousands of dollars so that we could then the next year buy a trailer in a trailer park. And when we moved into that trailer, I remember the front door, it was literally like a piece of thin plastic laminate over a piece of foam. The door wasn't even wood. And I remember when the wind would blow, the whole trailer would shake. And just though that experience, and I remembered not liking to live there and just not having much. And why I'm saying that is that if you have something now, and I have a lot more than I had back then, but I don't want to view people any different than how I viewed them back then. I don't want to devalue people. I don't want to think less of people because they don't have as much. And whatever resources I have, I want it to be a blessing to others. And some of my most positive or memorable experiences in the past year were with individuals that had substantial resources, but didn't just walk past insignificant people, but actually cared about people and didn't have to have everybody think that they were the most important. They didn't have to be the center of attention, but valued people for just being people, whether they had resources or not, whether they look, look like them or not. So this is about what I learned last year. And that was self-reflectively a, a, a big point. I'd rather not have more if it means that I, I would change for the worse. But I'm thankful for what Junior Resource Stocks have done. And I'm hoping that you will be successful in 2024. Hopefully some of these thoughts that I shared will cause you to reflect upon your decision-making process and what you do in this sector. And hopefully this show over 2024 would also be a blessing to you through the guests and stuff that we talk about. That's all I have for today. And uh, I'll catch you on the next show. Appreciate your listenership. All the best. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concommitment with that, if you don't do the 
the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.